0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, February 22nd, the Washington Post hosted another installment of its ongoing Addiction in America live news series, where policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts examine the country's opioid crisis. In this segment, The Washington Post's health and medicine reporter Lenny Bernstein goes one-on-one with the Republican governor of Massachusetts, Charlie Baker. He's a member of the president's commission on combating drug addiction and the opioid crisis. The governor discusses his state's efforts to combat the opioid epidemic. Let's listen.
1: Morning, everyone. Morning. Uh, as Chris just said, I'm Lenny, pardon me, Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter for The Post. My guest, as uh, all of you know, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker mem- was a member of the uh, President's Commission on Opioids. Um, he proposed, and uh, your legislature passed, the nation's first limit on uh, prescriptions, first-time prescriptions for uh, opioid drugs uh, at 10 days. Um, and seven. Seven, sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's a, yeah. If I hadn't said that, Secretary Sutters would have. She would have just uh, announced uh, it, right? Right.
1: <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and I was going to say that he remains adamantly opposed to the benching of Malcolm Butler during the entire Super Bowl. <laughs> um, so I hear. Um, so we've had uh, almost relentless bad news uh, over the past several years on the opioid epidemic. Um, One of the few places where good news is coming out is Massachusetts. Your overdose rate is down. Uh, As we said, your prescription rate is down because of that great seven-day limit. Um, And uh, the number of tablets that are being prescribed is down. Um, How are you accomplishing uh, what's going on in Massachusetts right now?
2: Well, first of all, uh, almost all the information that came out recently, which was the 2017 data, um, which was an improvement for the first time in many years over the previous year in a number of areas, was referred to in the media, and I think this is the right term, as a sort of a muted commentary. I mean, I think our view is, if you see something where it gets worse by double digits every single year for a really long time, and then all of a sudden your prescriptions uh, move down, you have millions of prescribers, or hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of prescribers using your prescription monitoring program for the millions of prescriptions they're writing virtually all the time, and you see a big dro- drop in prescriptions and you see some leveling off in overdoses and a decline for the first time in a very long time in deaths. You know, compared to the trend, that's all positive, but um, but I would say that where we are is still very much in the middle of this, and we have a long way to go. And I do think the legislation that you mentioned previously that we worked with the legislature on, which included things like requiring um, all prescribers as part of their continuing education program to take and pass a course in opioid therapy and pain management and and some significant increases in support for treatment uh, and recovery services and and a first investment in um, school-based assessment programming for middle school and high school kids and a whole bunch of stuff in the prevention and education space um, that was designed to help inform patients, coaches, families, practitioners—sort of everybody involved in this mix. Um, I think all that stuff has helped, but there's nobody in Massachusetts, I don't think, who is doing anything other than sort of breathe, breathing a sigh of relief and recognizing that this means some of the things we're working, seem to, we're doing, seem to be working. But we have miles and miles to go.
1: Folks, I should remind you um, that uh, if you have questions and we would really love to take them, uh, please tweet them to, uh, and use the hashtag post live and uh, I'll get them on the tablet and, and pose them to the governor. So, as you say, um, the epidemic continues. It's, it's, still, it's still bad and, about, and most of it is fentanyl. Uh, I think uh, 80% of the folks who overdosed uh, in your state and in many other places, um, over the past year or so, have fentanyl uh, in their systems. Um, nationally, the number of uh, fentanyl overdose deaths more than doubled last year. What are you doing here about fentanyl? What can you do here about fentanyl?
2: Yeah. So the um, fentanyl and 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 the movement on fentanyl is significant. And you know, as recently as 2014, fentanyl was present in about 30% of the overdose deaths in Massachusetts. And as you point out. Uh, in 17, it was present in over 80% of the deaths. I mean, it is clearly um, a major force in uh, in both overdoses and deaths. And a big part of what we're doing there is working with our colleagues in, in the federal government and with uh, our colleagues in local law enforcement. And, um, and, and the, the good news there, okay, it's kind of a similar story. The good news there, <coughs> there have been a whole series of very significant... Interventions on the law enforcement side. A lot of people trafficking in enormous quantities of fentanyl um, have been arrested, and um, and their um, and their products been been taken off the streets. But the size of some of these drug busts speaks to just how much of this is uh, is currently in our communities. And uh, and I would say one of the things that we've been talking to. The local justice department folks about is uh, is doing more because uh, it, part of the problem with fentanyl is um, it travels through a whole series of relatively hard to identify uh, transportation networks to get here. One of the biggest, which biggest of which is the mail. Um, I mean, it's a it's an odorless um, ent- element that li- you literally can put inside a paper bag or a, or a brown-wrapped box and Small off it animal. goes. Yeah,
1: exactly. It just comes in from right. the mail. Yeah. So what do we do?
2: I think you have to do everything you can to try and take as much of it off the street as possible. But I would also argue that um, you still need to think about this as a, as a prevention education exercise as well as a treatment and recovery exercise and recognize that this threat is there. Um, and for us, that means things like the second piece of legislation we filed, which is, um, which is designed to create sort of a structured program around recovery coaching and, um, and, and, and taking something that a lot of people have started to incorporate into, into the treatment and recovery world and create some, some standards and some structure around it so that we can create what I would describe as um, a more robust and supported and uh, and, and, and clinically designed approach to reco- long-term recovery. Because one of the things most people say about folks who are dealing with opioids is it's not the kind of thing that somebody's going to lick in a short period of time. You have to create some framework to actually help them get better and to stay with them over time. And, there are a lot of folks who have started to see some benefit with recovery coaches. We, we created a pilot program where we embedded recovery coaches in a number of emergency rooms to see if somebody who's been there and done that, and a lot of the recovery coaches tend to be people who are in recovery themselves, would be in a position to engage people who overdosed and to say, I'm in recovery, can we sort of talk about maybe having you Get into recovery at this point in time, and again the results are preliminary and it doesn't involve a big sample size at this point, but we have seen some significant positive development in, um, in those interactions translating into people um, moving into uh, moving into treatment and uh, and now the key is we have to figure out how to get them to stay in treatment I've seen
1: people go straight from the emergency room right back out to the street yeah. just and just. Uh, avoid
2: treatment. Um, we, have, we have some stuff on our legislation on that, too. I mean, I think the, the data on people who um, who overdose um, needing to find a path into treatment um, is pretty powerful with respect to once you get to the point where you've overdosed uh, several times, um, you're, you're somebody we really need to figure out a way to get into treatment because you've got um, you're you're heading down a road that that in many cases leads to a very bad place.
1: Well, one of the things you've proposed is a 72-hour involuntary hold uh, for people where you would actually would be allowed against a person's will to put them in treatment. Um, can you tell us how that would work and how people's uh, rights would be protected?
2: So, in Massachusetts, um, you can currently be civilly committed for uh, if you are viewed as an immediate danger to yourself or someone else that's and that 's been in place for years um, it 's called a section and we built this using a similar um, framework both from a legal construct and also from an operating operating point of view um, to put this pro, this this notion in place. We spent a bunch of time talking to um, Clinicians in the ERs to hospitals um, to, to, to folks who run treatment programs and said how do we how do we figure out some way to create? Um, a handoff for lack of a better word um, for somebody who comes in overdoses get stabilized um, and makes it possible for somebody to use the same legal framework for all intents and purposes that we already have for people who are a danger to themselves on the mental health side and put these folks into A treatment program for 72 hours now if after 72 hours they basically say not interested they can they can leave the program
1: well would you have to show that someone was a danger to themselves in order to put them into that program or
2: well yeah I I guess the theory there would be that if you are somebody who has overdosed and nearly killed yourself several times um, you're getting to the point where um, it's pretty clear that we should at least try to get you um, to take seriously the treatment idea and this is where by the way I do think the recovery coaches particularly the ones we've piloted have turned out to be pretty effective ambassadors for treatment generally for folks who are in those situations but it's really hard to get somebody who's in the throes of this who's probably been narcan and therefore is in a really bad place emotionally and psychologically um, to buy into the idea of treatment at that point and the thought was 72 hours in a treatment program. Again, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But the one thing I've heard over and over again from a lot of the folks I've talked to in the addiction community is you don't know necessarily when treatment is gonna stick.
1: It Could be the third relapse, could be the fourth relapse.
2: Could be, and almost everybody I've talked to in this space, family members and others have all said to me exactly that, that that the point at which it stuck was a very hard thing to predict and that you had to presume that um, there would be relapses, bumps in the road um, along the way. And, and, I, and I said this when I testified about this issue at the, before the legislature, you know, we all grow up being told by our parents, by our teachers, by our coaches, by almost everybody that failure is part of success. That um, there are always obstacles and setbacks in achieving anything of great significance. We hear that all the time. It's a cliche. I happen to believe it's true, but it's a cliche. Um, when we get into this area of treatment and recovery, somehow we, we sometimes forget that. You're we forget to succeed the first time. Exactly. We forget that we've told people. Um, for years and years that you know, failure's part of getting there. And I think in, uh, particularly for people who are battling um, an opioid addiction, for many of them, um, it simply wouldn't be surprising if it took more than one try to get from here to there. And, um, and, I, and I think we should, we should incorporate that in the way we think about treatment generally. We've put 1,100 treatment beds up over the course of the past several years. We're going to put another 500 up, but we really need to also figure out this sort of continuing support model um, for folks um, over time so that they have um, what I would describe as sort of the, the, the consultative services that go with, in some cases, medication-assisted treatment of one kind or another um, to help them stay on the path the to program. recovery, and with the program. I
1: mean, people relapse in other, other areas in <clears throat> dieting and with other diseases. Yeah, you do not hold it against them.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, you are opposed, or at least openly skeptical, about um, uh, supervised consumption sites,
2: um, places where. I hadn't heard him called that before. Is that a? Is that a <laughs> that's a. Is that new term? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Where people bring their For those drugs in. who've never heard that one before, I think he's talking about safe injection sites, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, they, yeah. Supervised consumption Supervised.
1: People bring their drugs in off the street. They <clears throat> are given um, <clears throat> clean needles. They are given uh, clean other kinds of equipment if they're cooking or they're smoking. Um, but most importantly, of course, um, they are being watched and supervised uh, by people with uh, n- naloxone and oxygen in case they overdose. And inevitably, people do. Um, I went up to Vancouver. They, had, they have 29 of these now in uh, British Columbia. And quite a few are just popping up in tents um, in Vancouver itself. Tell us why you feel the way you feel about those uh, those kinds of places.
2: Well, first thing we should remember is they're illegal in the United States, which is, and most yet, people would call that a bit of a roadblock. Um, and yet,
1: s- some cities are, are saying they're gonna open one regardless of the law.
2: Um, we have some very interesting dynamics going on between state and local and federal government yeah, these days do. on all kinds Ooh. of things. Um, the, um, I, my data on this is relatively old. I do think folks in our administration who are gonna be on the west coast are gonna take a trip up to Vancouver and, and see what's going on up there. My biggest concern with it is um, there was very little information that suggested that this was a path to treatment. And um, and I am really interested in pass to treatment because our goal here should be to get people into treatment. Um, everybody I've ever talked to who's in this space um, has never said to me that this is the way they want to live the rest of their life. And uh, and, I, and I think part of what we need to what we need to focus on here is treatment. And I'm not. The last time I checked in on this, and I'll be the first to admit my data is old, there was very little evidence that this was a pathway to treatment.
1: Um, I think that's true, but I also think uh, the folks up there would say to you, there is no path to treatment until we keep these people alive, day after day after day. Um, They've never had an overdose death in one of these, whereas, as we discussed at the beginning, you have many overdose deaths and people are...
2: Are Are they still operating as anonymous? Uh, operations?
1: No, not in Canada. No,
2: no, I mean like the people who, who go there.
1: The, the one I was at, you do, not have to le- you do not have to leave your name.
2: So how do you know that they, they may not have overdosed that time, but how do you know that they aren't people who've overdosed in some other setting after that?
1: Well, a lot of them are coming back day after day after day, and it, it, it gives them a, a level of comfort where they're actually... Um, taking the drugs in a clean and supervised environment and they know if they go down, somebody's going to jump on them. There's one operating anonymously in the United States. We don't know where it is, but...
2: Anonymously in the United States? (laughs)
1: Underground, yeah, according to the research. Okay. Um, I get emails every time I write a story or every time the subject comes up in the post, Um, and I bet you get these every day, Uh, and they're from people who say, I 'm in pain uh, if I don't get my drugs I don't function I can't get out of this chair um, I don't take a lot but I do take it and I take it on a regular basis um, and you your work is going to make it impossible for me to get my drugs and you you're sentencing me to a to a life of pain now the research tells us beyond twelve weeks that may not be the truth but it is certainly the way many people that I hear from feel. Um, do you get those kinds of uh, emails and letters from people? And, yeah. and what do you say to them?
2: So, <clears throat> first of all, um, we, should, we should all respect the fact that um, people in chronic long-term pain um, are playing an incredibly messy and difficult hand to begin with. And um, and that's why the legislation we proposed was a seven-day limit on first prescriptions. Um, with, by the way, a pretty decent um, exception opportunity for prescribers. Um, if they felt it was critical that that person get, um, get more than that. And it's presumed by us and by others that, um, the chronic pain is a different issue. And I've read the same literature you have that says that there's not a lot of evidence that it works for people after a certain period of time. Um, but I, I think the... When, when I think about how we got into this situation, um, some of it was about chronic pain, but a lot of it was about wildly overprescribing for short-term stuff. and And this message about, you know, keep taking it, stay ahead of the pain and keep taking it, and that just led a lot of people who were actually going through withdrawal to think they're, they were actually still dealing with the pain associated with whatever the circumstance was that led them to get the prescription in the first place.
1: When in fact they may just be sensitive to pain as a result <laughs> exactly. of their withdrawal symptoms.
2: Exactly. Right. Um, so, I, I mean, I do think by, we didn't get this in the statute, but we got agreements from our medical schools, nursing schools, social work schools, dental schools, and pharmacy schools to build into their core curriculum. Opioid therapy and pain management because I do think there's a whole generation of practitioners out there who were never really trained around any of this stuff, which creates part of the issue as well. And one of the things that's in this legislation we filed was to work with uh, with folks in the pharmacy community and in the medical community to see if we can't come up with a blister pack for um, really small you know, wisdom teeth, small time, what I would describe as small time stuff where why anybody would write somebody a 30 or a 60-day supply for something like that is beyond me. And if we could give them a tool that made it possible for them to write a much smaller dose that would be more consistent with what they would probably want to give this to this person if they had a tool available to them, I think they would. I think um, at least
1: now they're thinking about, why am I given 30 or 60? Well, hopefully, for
2: that, yeah. small, that short-term stuff. On the longer-term stuff, um, we actually had a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of pain folks, uh, clinicians and, and and advocates, in for a conversation to talk about. Well, help us understand what some of the alternatives might be, and and how we can how can we incorporate those alternatives into either um, the way our mass health program works or um, the way our our our, uh, our coverage policies work for commercial insurance and. And I got to tell you, one of the things that came out of that conversation, for me anyway, was, as a layperson, is um, pain's a very complicated issue. And and it's not clear to me that um, you can think about it in a broad stroke. That for long-term chronic pain, there are a lot of different elements at work here. And what we probably need to do is make sure that we have as many of the tools available to people as possible and let folks try and figure out which ones work best for them. But on the really short-term acute stuff, I really do believe that um, being, uh, being careful and cautious with this stuff is uh, is a big part of what we need to be doing with respect to prevention and education. Um, I, for the folks who give me and, and you apparently a hard time on justifiably with respect to the um, the binary conversations they seem to be having with some folks in the in the provider community about their situations. Um, I talk to people all the time who say, you know, I had a minor procedure and my, my, uh, my provider, doctor, dentist, whatever, wanted to write me a 30 day supply. I said, I didn't want a 30 day supply. They said, take it. I said, I don't want it. They said, take it. And they walked out the door with a 30 day supply and in many cases they don't fill it. We do now have the ability to do partial fills in Massachusetts, which is helpful. Um, Is that an insurance issue?
1: The pills are covered and maybe not with dentistry, but with other things, it's harder to get coverage for physical therapy and other alternative forms of pain relief.
2: I think sometimes that's true. Um, on the Mass Health side, that stuff's covered without a prior authorization. Um, I do know a lot of the commercial carriers in Massachusetts have now started to make that available for the same reason. They, they see it as an alternative to, um, to what has clearly been a, a an ineffective and, in some cases, for people, dangerous solution to the pain problem for many others. Um, But I I do think one of the things we are going to focus on and and try and work on is, what are some alternatives we can make available for people um, and help educate folks about what those alternatives are and what kinds of presenting circumstances they would work best in? Because for the chronic chronic pain sufferers, it's a completely different conversation in my mind than it is for the short-term stuff.
1: Gotcha. Here's a question uh, on, uh, from someone on Twitter. She says, um, how can we encourage businesses to take a chance on hiring people in early recovery? I, I hadn't really thought about that, but is it, is it uh, a difficult road to, uh, to get rehired when you're in recovery? Are businesses reticent to do that? And, and if so, what can we do about that?
2: Um. You know, I've always been advised by my mother, especially, to not answer questions I don't know the answer to. Um, but I, that's a hard question, It is okay? a tough question, that's a very um, tough question. What I would say is that, for the most part, I think employers, um, for the most part, try to be pretty, um, and, and there are laws in place as well, try to be pretty, um, pretty good about helping existing employees who end up with a problem with any kind of substance, okay? Alcohol, drugs, opioids, whatever it might be, um, go into treatment and, and find their way um, back to work. And, and there's, I mean there are, there are, there's legislation on this, there are regulations, and there are corporate best practices on this that all went front, that have all moved very much to the support folks, help them get better, um, so that they can get back to work and be productive again. With respect to new hires, I guess that's a more complicated question because um, I would assume that no one's required under law to say anything about the fact that they're in recovery. Um, but depending upon the, the nature of their recovery um, and what that requires them to do, that may factor into a conversation they would need to have with somebody in HR. Um, I, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna have to parking lot that one and do a little homework on it. I mean, I'm literally processing. Fair we have medical marijuana in Massachusetts, right. which is legal. And I do know there are people um, who deal with their employers on that issue because that's turned out to be an effective way for them to deal with pain and, and other issues like that. Um, but even there, you run into issues with folks who do work with the federal government where um, you know, there are federal requirements associated with drug testing that factor into the, the medical marijuana space as well. Um, that's a good question.
1: This one. Um, what role do you want to see um, the pharmaceutical companies play um, in the curbing of the opioid epidemic? Is there anything they can do here across the nation? Um, do you feel they should be funding recovery, funding, funding treatment? Uh, in, in any way as a result of having been involved at the beginning?
2: Well, I guess I'd start with how about do no harm, right? <laughs> Stop promoting um, these medications with a far more tilted set of statements and, um, and uh, promotional notions about the positive side of this stuff without talking at all or even downplaying the negative side of it and I was pleased to see uh, I think Purdue said they were going to get out of the business of uh, right. physician detailing on this and I think that's great but it's probably 15 years too late right um, I think the um, I know there's a ton of Massachusetts is one of many states um, that are involved in all sorts of um, civil procedures with the f- manufacturers of these products and, uh, and we obviously support the work the Attorney General is doing there. Um, I, I think the... I know there are folks in the pharma space who are working on non-narcotic alternatives to pain management. Um, I hope, they, I hope yeah. they continue to do that. I think that's important. Um, but I... I would like to see them be a lot more aggressive about... Um, I'm not remembering the terminology here. There are certain kinds of um, medications in this space that are far less easy to crush and break. And, oh, yeah. You um, can't tamper with them. You can't tamper with Tamper-proof, thank you. I would like to see them get a lot more aggressive about pricing and promoting the tamper-proof stuff over the traditional stuff because if you look at... They give lip service to that, but if you look at the way all this stuff is priced, for the most part, there's far more of the tamperable stuff in the market than the tamper-proof stuff in the market. Um, But I really, um, I would just like them out of the detailing business completely, and I would like them to acknowledge the fact that um, for very many people in the United States of America, those medications improperly promoted have caused an incredible amount of pain and harm and destruction.
1: Okay, we have about a minute. Um, You can't just say money in answering this question. Um, You were on the President's Commission. You uh, worked very hard. You (coughs) uh, proposed many, many ideas, (coughs) pardon me, of what could be done. Yep. We've seen, other than the law enforcement you've mentioned, we've seen very little movement. What do you need from the feds?
2: I would love to see, and I can't, I can't say money. Can say money, but not just money. <laughs> not just money. Okay. Um, I would love to see the feds uh, get very aggressive about education. Right, all the folks graduating from all those schools I talked about before. I would love to see everybody coming out of those schools um, have to take and pass a course in opioid therapy and pain management. The feds are in a position to make that. We did that in Massachusetts on a voluntary basis with all of our. Graduate schools, or feds are in a position where they can make that happen nationwide. Um, I would like to see them incorporated into all the CEU programming for um, everybody who's a prescriber. Um, I would like to see the, um, I would like, you know, we're going we're gonna to figure out how to make recovery coaches a sort of embedded part of the way the healthcare system works um, in Massachusetts. I would love to see the feds get really aggressive about recovery coaches, because I think they are a huge opportunity, if we do this well, to really help people who get into recovery stay in recovery. Um, I mean, many of the things that we're trying to do here in Massachusetts that we believe have been successful, the feds have a much bigger playing field and a much bigger opportunity to turn into reality around the rest of the country. Um, The feds could give us the ability. to make to put a standing order out there to make Narcan available over the counter. Um, I mean, they they have <laughs> they have a lot of tools. And I guess what I would say is, um, now that we have a, a confirmed Health and Human Service Secretary, I would like to see Secretary Azar take this stuff and run with it.
1: Governor, thank you so much. That's uh, that's all the time we have. Thanks, Governor. So Um, we'll the uh, next panel will uh, be on in a moment.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at washingtonpostlive.com.